The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Double X Gabfest for Thursday, September 7th, the Princess Diana Beanie Baby edition. I'm June Thomas, the managing producer of Slate Podcast, and as usual, I'm joined by Noreen Malone of New York Magazine. Hello, Maureen. Hello. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> Hi, June. I've been gone so long that you forgot my name. It's <laughs> mere two weeks and I'm out. No, Reen. No, Reen. <laughs> Noreen, we missed you awfully. Missed you, too. Uh, Hannah Rosen is away on a reporting trip, so we're going to be missing her this week. But we're not going to be bereft of Washington, D.C. energy because completing our threesome this week, live from the nation's capital, is fabulous Slate staff writer Christina Cotarucci. Hey, Christina. Hi, thanks for having me back. Sure, and I didn't mess up your name, so hey, points. <laughs> so this week we'll be discussing the latest in a never-ending series of expressions of shock, horror, and surprise that Team Vogue publishes write-on articles about social issues alongside beauty tips and fashion spreads. We'll assess the enduring fascination with Princess Diana 20 years after her death and... We'll look at Tignataro's Amazon Prime series One Mississippi, which returns for a second six-episode season on Friday. Then, in our Slate Plus segment, we'll ask whether the response to Taylor Swift's latest video, Look What You Made Me Do, is sexist, as the video's male director, Joseph Kahn, claimed. If you're not yet a Slate Plus member, you can start your free two-week trial by visiting slate.com slash xxplus. All right, let's get on with the show. So our first topic this week is Teen Vogue. Uh, In the weeks after last November's election, several media outlets noted with surprise that the youthier version of Condé Nast's iconic fashion magazine was publishing some of the scourgingest takes on Donald Trump and politics generally, especially after Lauren Duca published Donald Trump is Gaslighting America on the magazine's website. The celebration of the magazine has continued since then. At the Women's March in January, a popular sign read, Teen Vogue will save us all. And last week, the New York Times published a profile of Teen Vogue editor Elaine Welteroth, written by Jasmine Hughes. So this seemed as good a time as any to assess both Teen Vogue and the foamy response to it. Since Elaine Welteroth took over last year at the age of 29, youngest ever Condé Nast editor-in-chief and only the second black woman to be an editor-in-chief of a Condé Nast publication, the magazine has published a lot about Trump, about LGBTQ issues, about reproductive rights, about cultural appropriation. Christina, were you surprised by how even members of the media seem to think of women's magazines and women's publications in 2017? Yeah, I was. I mean, I I definitely thought that we were in a place generally in media where we accepted that, quote unquote, women's publications were interested in all of the things that women are interested in. So not only, you know, fashion and beauty and sex, but also politics uh, and social justice issues and stuff that's going on in the news. Um, I think Teen Vogue is a little bit different from maybe other women's magazines like Cosmo in that it is for teens. So I think Mm -hmm. that part of the surprise had to do with that, that, you know, teen girls were interested in politics when, say, they can't vote yet or interested in, you know, issues that they might not have had a lot of experience talking about. But Mm. I think I wasn't particularly surprised because the few teens that I know do talk about social justice issues and are some of the most passionate activists. The bar may have been a little bit lowered because it is a young women's publication. Mm. So I think that Teen Vogue is getting a lot of credit for, you know, being quote unquote woke as it calls itself Mm -hmm. um, when – you know, so are a lot of other publications. Um, but yeah, I, I I definitely think that the the immediate shock was, uh, as they say on the Double X Gadfest, sexist. <laughs> <laughs> Noreen, you know, I do think that the the teen in Teen Vogue is it was part of the cause of the reaction. Um, it, you know, and apparently the it's the magazine is aimed at young women or young people. I. I actually don't know if they see themselves exclusively as being for women at this point. Um, But the official demographic is 18 to 24, I believe. Um, It seems that a lot of people have really strange and outdated ideas about what teens read uh, or want to read. Did you read this kind of magazine when you were 
in that age group? Oh, um, sure. You know, <laughs> I was a teenage girl, not not in any kind of like obsessive way, but uh, you know, I'd pick up a Cosmo if it was lying around. I don't remember Teen Vogue being so much in the rotation. Um, you know, Cosmo was exciting for the sex tips, mm-hmm. and, and I I don't really associate that with Teen Vogue. But but what I think people are responding to in this, what what is genuinely different than the way a lot of women's magazines, like traditional glossy women's magazines, right? I would draw a distinction between that and um, an online women's magazine, which in general tend to be more um, dexterous, let's let's say. Um, you mean in terms of the the different kind of topics, the the range of topics they might cover? Right. Yeah. So I think a lot of you know. This all goes back to Jezebel, right? Yeah. Um, and and Jez- what Jezebel did was it, uh, you know, said we are a feminist magazine and we care about fashion and beauty. And and this is sort of flipping the script and saying we are a fashion and beauty magazine, but we care about feminism, right? Mm, so yeah. it's it's like coming at it from a slightly different side that people are more surprised by that, I suppose. And Jezebel, just to be clear, owed things to the feminist blogosphere mm-hmm. and and you know had all kinds of intellectual. Um, forebears, but I think I think the sort of modern mix that we think of as a women's magazine comes from Jezebel. But what is different, I think, about Teen Vogue is the valence of its politics. Um, it's you know if you look at a magazine like Cosmo, which or Glamour, those tend to be more um, you know politically f- have in recent years been more politically focused, as has Marie Claire. It's a certain kind of like I would say. Hillary Clinton kind of um, liberalism, um, mm-hmm. for better or for worse. So, yeah, sort of like Sheryl Sandberg, um, you know, women's empowerment as the primary uh, driving force that, you know, women's reproductive rights are vital, that, you know, women getting ahead of business in business is vital. So it's it's sort of aimed at um, the the reader's own political interests. And mm-hmm. what's interesting about Teen Vogue is that it it inhabits the identity politics moment, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, the reader might be a white teenage girl in Iowa, but she's super interested in, like, uh, you know, a gender-bending black teen mm-hmm. in, you know, New York City. Like, mm-hmm. it, it, it just takes things away from the traditional women's magazine political activism. And it happens to coincide with the prevailing generational politics and the, you know, prevailing sort of internet politics of the moment, which is, I think, why people responded in such a way. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting that um, so much emphasis of the coverage is about Elaine Welteroth, who, you know, generally does seem like a person uh, who has an interesting story and is, is worthy of the coverage. But a lot of the attention that the magazine is generating comes from the website, right. which is run by Philip Picardi. And, for example, just recently there was a piece that was, you know, that came to my attention. Um, it was by Lauren Michelle Jackson. Everybody was talking about it one morning. It was called We Need to Talk About Digital Blackface in Reaction Gifts. And it was this really important and, you know, just really cutting observation of the way that people, um, especially white people, use black people's, especially black women's, um, you know, expressions of like sass or nonchalance or anger or whatever, um, as a kind of for their for their own responses when they when they drop a reaction give into an email thread or a tweet or whatever, um, and that was a really great piece. Um, it was seemed fresh. It was it was really well written. It wasn't finger waggy. It was like just you know you all might want to think about what you're doing when you do this kind of thing. And it was from Team Vogue, but I can't say that I read it because it was from Team Vogue. I mean, the way that we learn about pieces these days is somebody sends us a link or people are talking about something. So, you know, it's hard for any magazine to kind of, you know, establish its brand because everything's just a link on the Internet. Um, Christina, you you look for links most mornings uh, for double X. Um <laughs> Where would you put Team Vogue in the like in the pantheon of sources of news about the world or, you know, the either about the way the world is being shitty to women or the really cool things women are doing? Like, where is it in your links, uh, Luking? Um, well, I'm glad you brought up the the blackface gift piece, because that seemed like for me, the first piece I had ever really seen from Teen Vogue that seemed essential and fresh and not sort of, you know, Re, uh, restating a lot of what 
what else is on the internet uh, in terms yeah. of the social justice and identity po- identity politics stuff. Um, I, you know, before that piece, I would sort of put it on the same wavelength as like a mic, mic.com, uh-huh. which is a little bit of, you know, least common denominator activism. We need to talk about X. Look at this mm-hmm. epic clap back of the person who shamed somebody about blah. This celebrity said something problematic um, without a lot of real analysis, just sort of like, here's a thing that's wrong and here's why. Um, Mm -hmm. I, you know, before that blackface gif piece came out, I didn't think Teen Vogue was really doing anything much different than what, you know, the other sites on the Internet that attract 18 to 24 year old people who consider themselves progressives. Um, Mm -hmm. And I think Teen Vogue has done a good job of marketing itself as this sort of place for progressive-minded young people who think they're woke and want to be woke and want to learn about wokeness. I, mm-hmm. An ad that stood out to me on Instagram had, you know, these two young actresses of color making the uh, black power fist on a high school football field wearing, you know, couture. Uh, <laughs> and the ad copy said something like uh, – or it said – this is the rebellious, outspoken, and empowering magazine you need right now. You know, describing oneself as rebellious and outspoken yeah. and empowering seemed to me sort of the opposite of rebellious, outspoken, and empowering. It doesn't seem like – it seems like your readers should be able to figure out whether or not you're those things. Uh, and that, you know, putting the word rebellious on an Instagram ad sort of negates the concept. Um, but, you know, I I think that if teens are – or, you know, young people, since we've established that it's not just teens reading this. Um, if young people are, you know, have another site that's accessible to them that feeds their interest in these concepts that, you know, they're hungry for, I think it's a great thing. I think Teen Vogue generally does a good job of uh, – it doesn't look from the surface like Teen Vogue is necessarily commodifying these issues that they're writing about in the mm-hmm. same way that, let's say, a Mike.com does where, um, you know, it's it's very clear that they're just like using SEO strategies to uh, push out these three paragraph pieces about, you know, this horrible thing a, a famous person said Um it seems like the a lot of the Teen Vogue writers have a fair amount of knowledge, are uh, committed and good at analyzing stuff. And, you know, mm-hmm. I don't have much bad to say about it. I'm interested in the vogueness of it, right? Yeah, so yeah. I think that's part of the reaction that people yeah, have. Like sure. what? Because Vogue as a brand stands for um, a sort of certainly a cold version of, of fashion, mm-hmm. a moneyed version of fashion, um, just like, you know, sort of untouchable. And this is obviously quite different. It's in the mix on the internet. It's uh, it's not that tied to fashion mm-hmm. on the surface. But I, but I think if you, like, consider identity politics as like the rock and roll of our time or as as the sort of like the mode of our time then it sort of makes more sense with the Vogue brand right like like they are ultimately using this to sell clothes and to sell advertising and with with you know fancy advertisers this is just how they connect with people and the sort of icy you know inaccessible you can't live in this british countryside house is no longer <laughs> such a um it's it's no longer aspirational for right. people but but to live in in a you know more perfect world a more free world is all of a sudden the aspirational quality and so i think they are tapping into that in a way that's smart and not just about social justice right it's it's like they they seem to be um talking about things that they genuinely believe in and or you know certainly the pieces read that way but at the same time it's a business that is using this as a strategy to both serve its readers and to keep the magazine going um, I think a lot of the surprise that you're talking about isn't only that it's Vogue, the cold fashion magazine, but also because Condé Nast for many years was kind of terrible on the web um, in all of its uh, brands. 
um, and has really started to focus time and attention just in the last few years, long after, you know, the in what is, is either like the third or the fourth or the fifth wave of, of web magazines. Um, and several of the pieces about Team Vogue and the new or the sort of the un the unvarnished emphasis on social issues and politics stress how that it's been good for web traffic. Um, you know, that apparently the web traffic is up 200% in 18 months. Subscriptions to the print magazine have gone up, even though the frequency went down to four per year. Um, so my question is, like, it doesn't surprise me that this stuff is good for web traffic. I wonder if it's good for the bottom line. I mean, these are publications, they're businesses, publications survive on advertising. You know, certainly the thing that I've picked up is that people don't want to advertise next to political content and especially not the brands that are vogue Uh, Nareen, you work at a print magazine. Uh, do you... Like, do you share my hesitation about this as a long-term strategy, a business strategy for Team Vogue? You know, I don't know. I, I would have to sort of look at what's happened to their ad pages. Yeah. Um, I mean, there is a difference in the way they present this online and mm. in print. Mm-hmm. In print, it's, it's um, I think, a little bit more about, you know, the choice of models yeah. and... The Q&As are short and a little bit defanged. I think it's, I don't want to say it's like the um, Kendall Jenner Pepsi ad of activism, but <laughs> but a little bit in that, you know, kind of like activism is good in a blank way that fashion and brands can sort of attach themselves yeah. to. Yeah. Um, I think no matter what, it's a publicity coup for Condé Nast. For sure, for sure. And Elaine Weltroth seems to be a very good editor, both in terms of, you know, getting people to read her magazine, uh, but also bringing attention to it, which is a big part of the job. Mm-hmm. And Philip Picardi on the website. All right. Tell us what you all think of Teen Vogue by going to facebook.com slash double X Gabfest. All right. Last Thursday, August 31st, was the 20th anniversary of the death of Diana Spencer, Lady Di, Princess Diana, the former Princess of Wales, the people's princess, call her what you will. The moment was marked by at least seven TV specials. That's here in the United States, at least seven TV specials. And while we at the Double X Fest don't typically concern ourselves with princesses, there's something about Diana that and the way that we humans can't let go of her that felt worthy of discussing and trying to figure out. Um, before we dissect the latest version of Dimania, Noreen and Christina, I'm super curious about your relationship with Diana. Um, as we just said, she's been dead for 20 years now. And so you guys were relatively young when she died. What do you even remember about her marriage, divorce and death? Um, I remember the death very vividly. I was at a concert with friends and our parents were driving us home when we got in the car and the, uh, you know, the news came on. Wow. Um, as far as remembering her... Honestly, I remember sort of the tabloid divorce of it. Mm-hmm. I vividly remember reading in like Time or Newsweek um, Prince Charles's famous uh, tampon oh, comment yes. and like being completely shocked by that. For people who may not have that seared in their memory as I do, he said to his um, mistress in a letter, I believe, or maybe over the phone. Or you're a text or something. That, <laughs> that I wish I could be a tampon so I was inside <laughs> of you right now. <laughs> um, that was <laughs> early revelation for me um but and he yeah. did li- listeners he married her <laughs> he married her <laughs> he married her um, so yeah i mean i had like a um you know sort of like image based uh remembrance of princess diana i would say and then i think i recommended this on the podcast earlier this year but i recently read tina brown's book on diana and um that if you if you don't like already know the ins and outs of the tabloid, um, you know the the sort of tabloid version of that story, the actual version of their marriage. Um, it's super fascinating and well done, and and so I rekindled my uh-huh. interest in Diana recently. Christina, what's your die quotient? I definitely didn't know much, if anything, about her before her death, but I do remember. <clears throat> I think for a lot of millennials, her death was the first big news event we can remember um, with wall-to-wall coverage. Uh, I was at a lake house with my parents and my dad's coworkers, and um, one of the 
people in the house was obsessed with the royals and we just had it on the TV for for days straight. And then I remember, you know, uh, a couple months later, there being a Beanie Baby with a rose on it. That was the Princess Di Beanie Baby. And it was supposed to be worth like millions of dollars someday. And my family found one at a rest stop and I made my dad buy it for me. And like my heart was pounding. Uh, And so I have, you know, very fond memories of of Princess Diana post-death. Do you Um, still have the Beanie Baby? Have you checked on its worth? (laughs) It never cashed in for me. I think my parents gave them away. And I thank them for that because they were starting to be, you know, a fire hazard in my childhood (laughs) closet. But but yeah, everything I know about her uh, is of her legacy, which I know um, it's very different to talk about what someone means after their death than what they actually were in life. So June... As a as a Brit and as somebody old enough to really remember her, yeah, you know, not to uh, reveal this, this isn't that I usually keep closely held, but Di and I were actually the same age, like born within weeks of each other, Uh, and so I was very much like she is my celeb, you know, she was the person in a way that I most, in in a sense, most uh, felt closest to me, but also was incredibly different. You know, I did not have the upbringing that she had. Um, But as I mentioned on uh, a plus segment on Culture Gabfest a couple of weeks ago, I was, I just happened to be in England when she died. And I'd had this, you know, as I said, we're the same age. I had um, worn a, when she got engaged to Prince Charles, and it was obviously a big fuss in Britain, I had a button that said, don't do it, die. And (laughs) And it was, it was the only time that people like on the subway or on the bus or whatever would you know, just kind of chastise me for wearing something. And I had all kinds of buttons that were much more, you know, shocking. But why did you feel so strongly? That was before, that was when people thought it was like this fairy tale marriage. Right. Well, because A, I hate the royals, or not the royals per se, but just the institution. <laughs> but also, it was very clear if you did look at it as just their two people who are supposed to be getting married, that they were completely ill suited. Not so much because of the age difference, all that was a, although that was a factor, but just they had nothing in common. <laughs> uh, and as I wrote in a piece many years ago in Slate, you know, the thing about Prince Charles, he he married his trophy wife. He married his trophy wife first, and then he married like the woman who's right for him in in like pretty much every way. Again, not just age appropriate, but just in terms of their interests and you know everything that like he married his his first wife second in a way. That's um, feminist. That's very feminist of him. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I, 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 having been in Britain when all the the when she died, it was just the craziest outpouring, and it did feel like a national um, bout of insanity. And do you think that people have such affection for Diana? I mean, now there's sort of like the beautiful life cut short, right? Just when she was coming into her own. But was it? Was it this idea that she's the beautiful blonde princess who's like locked up in the the tower and, you know, she needs to be rescued kind of thing? Was it simply, you know, that she did have these humanitarian causes? Was it that she just photographed well and gave good tabloid gossip? Like, what do you think it is? I mean, I think it's all of those things. And I also think that people felt guilty. I mean, the way mm. that, the, that the press wrote about her was incredibly exploitative, was incredibly intrusive. Um, as I mentioned on the on the Culture Gab Fest a couple of weeks ago, um, I happened to be coming from Spain on the kind of the overnight that she died going to London. And they gave us the kind of the papers that had been printed before the death, the night before in Britain. And the papers were full of all these really intrusive stories about mm. Diana, like incredible, like intrusive mm. that you can't believe. And then, you know, when I got to England, the covers had changed and they were all like these loving, you know, the pimp people's princess story. Um, so I think people felt bad about the way that they had exploited her. And I think she also represented a change in Britain. Um, you know, it's funny, we don't typically talk about it, but like the the great loves of her life were a Pakistani doctor, a Pakistani-born doctor, Dodi Al-Fayed. I mean, that felt like something that was a change. You know, Britain obviously has been multicultural for many years, but that was significant. And, you know, just as the fact that Prince Harry's uh, girlfriend, whatever uh, we're going to call Meryl Markle, is biracial. That feels really important, and like actually a really good thing for the royal family. And that, and so there were just lots. There were lots of things about Diana 
that were different and interesting. And the fact that she was attractive was not insignificant. Um, and she was open too, yes. right? Like she talked about her bulimia. She talked and famous. talked and talked <laughs> and talked, which was very un-British. And it's something that because now I live here and I have lived here for, you know, three decades, more than three decades. And when I go there after her death, it did feel like Britain had changed. You know, working class people who I associate with when I go home, like kiss each other when they see each other now. Hmm. That would never, ever, ever have happened. And I don't really Diana did that. Well, exactly. I can't say that like this woman who, who, you know, they never met and they never they didn't know who died caused that. I can't say why, but that the way that people were having these emotional outpourings, I don't know what else caused it. Is it just a coincidence that those two things happened? And because I only pop by like once a year or a little less than that, I don't know of any other causes, but um, yeah. Well, what about here in the States? Like, why are we, is it literally just the word princess that makes us kind of, it, it activates something in our brains where we feel differently about it? Like, what is it, what is it about her sort of it feels like a you know she was obviously very modern in some ways but it's such an old-fashioned word that is burrowed deeply into our brains i think there uh still is you know this this great fairy tale idea of marrying a prince and you know uh, around the time that i was collecting beanie babies <laughs> i you know was watching prince william and thinking oh wouldn't it be great if i if i might marry a prince someday what a what a glamorous family and you know, uh, how 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 beautiful their lives are, even in the wake of such tragedy. Um, and it, it's interesting to now as an adult to know and read more about the royal family um, and and to also realize that Diana, you know, was a, a blue blooded aristocrat. Oh, she sure, wasn't this sure. every woman. Um, and so it wasn't quite the fairy tale that I think uh, – some of the myths have have made it out to be. Um, But I also think of the glamour of her celebrity, too. I think uh, to what June was saying, it was tarnished a little bit by the paparazzi and the realization afterwards that, you know, or, or questions about how, whether and how much the paparazzi contributed to her death. And I think of other celebrities like Amy Winehouse or, mm-hmm. or other folks that sort of turned to alcohol and drugs as solace from the pressures of fame. Um, And I wonder, I think that uh, Diana's death was one of the first times that people were really able to turn a critical eye on the paparazzi and, and maybe also for the Royal family to say, you know, this was too much that, that this publicity that she was creating and, and the goodwill, it's, it might've created, it might've been too much that, that there is such a thing as, as giving too much to the press. And she also, you could see her not just as sort of um, a victim of paparazzi culture, but like her life was, you know, in many ways made by this marriage to Prince Charles, but in other ways ruined by it. And sort Mm -hmm. of the last gasp of what was essentially an arranged marriage or, or like a prescribed kind of cultural set of things that you needed to do. I mean, you can look at her that way. She's like someone who broke free of those shackles, you know, went and and like cavorted on yachts with the guy she really wanted. It, mm-hmm. It's interesting to think of her in those terms, too. So last week uh, on this 20th anniversary, uh, her sons, who were only 15 and 12 when she died, who were, you know, the, the royal princes and, you know, one of them at least is, unless we get rid of the royal family, going to be king at some point in the not too distant future. And they talked about her. They did some interviews with the press and they talked about their mother. And they said this is the last time they would do that. Um, does, you know, do you think that die time is done now? Do you, do you feel that? podcasts will talk about the you know we'll look back again on princess diana in 20 years time or 10 or even five or or might this be the end of our obsession with princess diana i mean who knows i i think people are similarly obsessed with um Wady Katie, um, who's now having her, her third child. I who, mean, again, like was forced to reveal to the world that she's <laughs> pregnant because, you know, mm-hmm. because she's having this really severe morning sickness. I mean, again, we're still 
probing into people's lives. Yeah. I mean, I don't know that we will continue our obsession with Diana with quite the same fervor, but I think the royal obsession it seems like it will continue. And and I look forward to the twists, the plot twists that will come when Harry marries Meghan Markle, oh. Suits actor. <laughs> exactly. I love that show. I've I've met her. You That's, have? Yeah. At so you're suits basically event. she married to Prince Princess Almost. material? Yeah. You know, I have to say, even I, who always knew that I was a lesbian, I, was, I did f- think like, oh yeah, maybe Prince Edward and I could get together. <laughs> like, so it's weird that people, like, it's almost like winning the lottery. Like marrying a prince is like winning the lottery. Uh, and but who would want that life you know so it's it's uh i I tend to have a little bit more sympathy i think for celebrities than a lot of people do but you know when we talk about kate middleton and the probing into her pregnancy i mean she married prince william yeah yeah. but wait maybe this is why people like diana because she punctured that fantasy for all of us right like like we got to see oh, this is how bad it would have been if we had married that prince. Thank God, you know, he didn't go for me over Diana. Like, you really saw the misery. She she let people into that in a way that maybe um, certainly royals hadn't before. And I don't know how much celebrities had sort of let people in on the, you know, woe is me. Yeah. Although, I mean, this is now a commonplace observation, but something, you know, the way that our, the the kind of celebrities we're interested in have changed um, you know, maybe after Diana, it's less about royals and more about people who really, really, really choose it. Yes, she chose it. She knew that she was marrying the future king. She knew that her wedding would be seen by millions of people around the world. But now, you know, maybe the kind of this part of the press that focuses on those people now goes for people who've really chosen it like reality stars but she okay she really um courted the press she oh you know, she did tipped yes. them off yeah. so it's a it's yeah. a give and a take like she was maybe a little bit the beginning of of you know the the star who tells them exactly where she's going to be she was really canny about that yeah um, i wonder if that was a little bit of you know her reaching out to regular humans to get out of her bubble and then it sort of no, she was just a narcissist. <laughs> <laughs> she was a total narcissist. They all are. All right. On Friday, September 8th, One Mississippi, Tig Notaro's semi-autobiographical kind of comedy, returns to Amazon Prime for a second season of six half-hour episodes. We watched some of those episodes, or all of them. Christina, how would you summarize One Mississippi? One Mississippi uh, is the semi-autobiographical representation of Tignataro's life. Uh, it's uh, about a woman who, uh, in the midst of a battle with cancer and a digestive illness and a parent's death, reconnects with her childhood hometown in Mississippi, uh, explores life, love, and relationships, um, grieves, figures out her uh, connection to her stepfather. It's it's a comedy. It's a tromedy. I've heard it described as a yes. tromedy uh, because it is full of grief and trauma and sorrow. Especially and also, in the first season. Yeah. Oh, my God, the first season. Uh, but, you know, Tignataro's sort of hyper-committed deadpan quips are present throughout the fil- the the series. Um and I think it's a it's uh yeah, it I think Tromedy describes it well because it's it's equal parts fun and and sweet and silly and incredibly devastating. But is it funny? <laughs> this, this is my... It, There's it, the question. Yeah, yeah. I guess, you know, she she is known as a storyteller, as a comedian. Mm-hmm. And and it, it's sort of like the brand of comedy that's truth-telling more mm-hmm. than anything. Mm-hmm. But I would never describe this as a comedy. I don't think I laughed once. Well, here's the thing. I really, really took against season one because I thought the pilot was just pulling my plunker. Like, Which I watched mm-hmm. last night and I was like, oh, man, I no. don't know if I can keep going. Exactly. Like, this is tough. And especially if you have, as I had seen the documentary Tig, it's not only are you getting an unremitting like basket of utter, you know, the most the most sadden- most saddening things and most scary things and most kind of the things that make you confront your mortality and all of this stuff 
it's just miserable. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it also came um, last season, last fall, you know, TV season. There were several shows where the pilots were unremittingly miserable. And I just thought, like, they were messing with people. Why would, you, why would someone sign up to be immiserated by watching television, especially things that were supposed to be comedies? And then several of those shows turned out to be, like, my favorite shows, like Atlanta, um, you know, Fleabag, you could also say that applied to maybe even better things. There were a lot of shows that had utterly miserable pilots. Um, and the second season, I liked a lot better. Um, there's just six episodes, uh, and I did think it was funny. One of the things that I do think is a flaw with the show, um, which is something that Sean Ariel Lehrer, uh, who wrote for Slate last year, kind of observed that the way that the Tig Bavaro character played by Tig Notaro, um, sort of, she, there's so much more emphasis placed on the stories and the situation that the character that she plays, who is obviously her, kind of ends up being just this sarcastic commentator on stuff. Like there's more reality, there's more feeling in the stories that the character tells on the radio show within the, you know, the show within a show rather than in that character. That character feels sarcastic and distanced. And that, I think, makes it like they're supposed to be funny, but it's actually kind of annoying. And it takes you out of or take took me out of the the out of the show in a way. And yet there is a lot to like about it, I think. Well, it seems like the I didn't get as far into the second season as you guys did, but it seems like it's set up to be more I mean still dealing with grief but more like okay she's a bit of a fish out of water in this town that is backwards in in some really striking ways right so she's trying to date um in Biloxi Mississippi and you know this woman she goes on a date with is not out and so every time they interact with someone uh you know she the, the woman pretends like she's straight or um she what's what's another thing that is so oh it's it's uh what is it greatest americans day oh yeah great american, great american day, day which is a way of honoring the heroes of the confederacy and she's you know the the tignataro along with martin luther king along with martin luther king and the tignataro character is kind of like mm, guys <laughs> <laughs> so i think you know there's there's some rich social commentary potential there um, but sometimes it felt a little forced, yeah. right? Yeah, like, like and they're a not didactic. the best. Act. Yeah, and there's both great acting, like the guy who plays her stepfather. I think is really great at acting a very specific and yet a kind of character that you don't see very much, and yet is very, you know, sort of real. Which I know is a weird kind of compliment, but I think everybody knows what you mean when you say that about a person in a work of fiction. Um, but then. Tig and her actual in her real life wife who plays her kind of co-worker slash crush object in this show. Oh, that's her real life wife? Yeah. I mm-hmm. didn't know that. They're actually not terribly good as actors, I think. <laughs> yeah, so I I felt like I wanted so much to like this show. Mm-hmm. Um I enjoyed Tignataro. I think she is funny. The times that I did laugh during the show were during some of her one-liners or mm-hmm. some of, uh, you know, her stepfather's ridiculous, uh, you know, anal retentive screeds. But I didn't feel like the plot – it felt like things were happening to the characters and yeah. they were reacting in prescribed ways almost like what would happen in a sitcom. It didn't feel mm-hmm. to me like these were – real people making things happen in their lives. And I agree that the acting, I felt like the only reason why they cast Tignataro and her wife in those roles were because they are together in real life. And I didn't even think that they have great chemistry no, on screen. No, no, I agree. It, it's, um, yeah, it, th- there are, there were things in the show that I found really uh Interesting things that I hadn't really seen. For example, the 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 portrayal of of like people of faith felt really interesting. You know, so several of the characters, you know, are Christian. They go to church. They and and you know they just generally profess their faith. And some of them are actually one of them is you know kind of a dinosaur denier. Uh, <laughs> 
And then the others, though, the, the other people of faith say, listen, you know, you you don't have to, you know, you can be a Christian without denying science. Uh, and so the way that I'm describing that surely um, shows that the didacticism rather than humor. Um, but it was refreshing to see people who were both dinosaur deniers, but also kind, loving, generous people like that felt really right positive the, the fear with a show like this that does tackle some of these issues in this climate is that it will just be like look at these you know terrible people in the south and and when it does do that it does do it with i think wit and grace yeah. Yeah. mostly yeah um yeah the, for example there's a guy who tig bavaro says oh wow now you've got permission by the election of Donald Trump to kind of to express your worst racist views, you know, with impunity. And again, she says it with a little more pizzazz than that. But that see that that moment to me actually felt like someone in the writer's room had read a think piece that said that. And they were like, <laughs> we're going to get this into the show. And they did. But there are there's so many times where they bring like hard things into the show. Like there's there's an odd meta commentary where her radio show essentially loses all its advertisers because she won't stop talking about like hard issues, you know, about lesbianism, about sexual abuse, about, you know, sexual molestation of children, which is real and important and goes viral uh, in in slightly unexplained ways, but does cost them, uh, you know, the, their financial support. And and but there's who's a in favor of molestation for children. No, no it's but just the idea of talking about talking it, about yeah. it, which actually does feel very you know, again, you're like, wow, why are you talking about this? This is really, this is too real. This is awkward. And, and you know, she shows, again, she shows people listening, you know, getting together to listen to something and like, oh, let's support Tig by listening to her show. And then what she talks about is really hard stuff that is awkward for people to listen to, as it is for us too, and yet it also feels important. It, it, the show, to me, felt a little bit overloaded with those yes. heavy topics. Yes. I think she, yes. you know makes a throwaway line about, oh, and also I was molested in just about every episode, especially yeah. in the first season. Um, but it's hard to criticize because yeah. this is also her life. And so yeah. you can't say, you know, oh, there's too much molestation talk in this show or too much, you know, grief talk in this show because it's her life. But right. I think there was too much molestation in the show. And it didn't feel like, you know, the moments where they really – uh, tried to grapple honestly with it. It didn't feel like they earned it because they had just come off of some, you know, strange, surrealist interstitial where the characters are singing a song from Fun Home. Right. And then now we're talking about now we're sad about the molestation that I I'm pretty sure you mentioned in the last episode. Yeah. I mean, if you like, it, it makes me think about what is the purpose of watching television, right? A show like mm -hmm. this feels like some combination of almost secular sermon, you know, like here are our liberal values. We are going to watch them on um, the TV tonight and and we are going to, you know, sort of think about them and have them reinforced and have them questioned and also um, a sort of complicated diaristic exercise that I don't necessarily know. I feel like it could have been edited, you know, and, and I am someone who goes to TV for escapism. Yeah, That's yeah, just yeah. what I want. I'm not sure that, you know, I respond to something like this and I there probably are people who do that want that in their television. But but for me, that's not, you know, I, I would rather think about those issues in another format, maybe writing. I, I just think like television has on some level an obligation to be entertaining. And mm -hmm. I think in certain points, it felt more like therapy. Yeah. Well, there's a really odd scene. Again, one of these things that feels, you know, meta commentary. So uh, the character Kate, the character played by Tignataro's wife, uh, goes in goes into a business meeting with you know her boss uh, who has her to a male boss who has to close the door and then he masturbates while she is there and it's kind of disguised it's not obvious but he he clearly is doing it um, and that is something that Louis C.K. who is an executive producer of the show has been accused of doing. A former executive producer, right? Well, he's still, still there, but apparently he's like he's not really been involved in the show, but his name is still on the show. And you're like, well, that's important. That's an important thing. But why did you do that? Like, it's like I was just kind of, I don't know, confused is, is not really the right word. But like, what, like how, what, how did you react to that, Christina? I 
didn't feel like it belonged in the show. I yeah. didn't I didn't feel like it uh it, I felt like it was just dropped in there to make those you know Tignataro's character and Stephanie Alin's character come together that this yeah. was a, a thing that they could bond over and a reason for them to then spend the night at her house. Right. Uh, I it came out of nowhere um and then it sort of disappeared out of nowhere or into yeah. nowhere. Yeah. Um and and I felt that way about a lot of the show. There was, you know, what I thought was a possibly compelling storyline where uh, a Vietnamese American uh, Christian woman, you know, is is trying to introduce Tig Bavaro's brother into the church, and that storyline completely gets dropped. I don't know yeah. what happened to her, and it felt like she just got fired from the show or something. Um, so I was kind of confused about a lot of the random plot points that got dropped in. Yeah. Yeah. And with something like the, you know, the, the Louis C.K. reference, it feels almost like, um, the people making the show are again, sort of wanting to lock down their cred in some way. Like, oh, we are associated with this man, but we, we understand that he's done a bad thing and we're, we want you. Or is accused of having done a bad thing. Yes. Is accused of having done a bad thing and we want you to understand that we do not condone that. Uh, It just, it feels like almost more like, um, you know, a nod to the meta commentary about the show than like the plot of the show. Yeah. Well, listeners, you can tell we're conflicted about this show. Like there were definitely things that I was really glad to see on my TV screen. Um, I mean, Christina, it's a super queer show, right? Yeah, I was I was very pleased with how gay the second season was. Uh, and, you know, there are some fun, I don't know if you'd call them Easter eggs, but uh, call-outs to the queer audience that I think people will enjoy. Yeah, but at the same time, we're also all seem to agree that there are, that it's just maybe more complicated than we would like it to be. But if you're interested in Tignataro, it's yeah. definitely worth checking out. Yeah. All right. So that's season two of One Mississippi, which will arrive on Amazon Prime on Friday, September 8th. So before we get to our recommendations, I want to put in a plug for another Slate podcast. That is, I have to ask. If you visit the Slate website on a regular basis, and I hope you do, you've surely read and enjoyed Isaac Chotner's interrogations of writers, thinkers, and newsmakers. For several months now, his interviews have also been available in podcast form. And every Thursday, you'll find another smart, sharp interview with an interesting person. And lately, a lot of those interesting people have been women. Maggie Haberman, Zoe Heller, Lydia Paul Green, Claire Massoud. And coming up in the next couple of weeks, CNN's Amna Nawaz and writer Ayobami Adebayo. Check out I Have to Ask every Thursday. I think you'll like it. All right, recommendations. What do you have for us, Noreen? Um, I have two books. The first, I am not discovering anything new for anyone probably, but I read my first ton of French novel um, on a beach, and I was so into it. I read The Trespassers or The Trespasser. I'll I'll look that up later. But um, yeah, just really well done, really sharp detective novel if you're into that kind of thing um set in dublin on the murder squad and i i really couldn't put it down and then um i also recently read a book called new people by danzy senna i picked it up because i'd read some reviews saying that it really kind of nailed the sociological characteristics of a you know sort of bougie fort green i live near there this was set in the 90s so it wasn't quite the same thing but i was interested in that um and it's a portrait of a couple both of whom are um mixed race um but who uh during college become super active in black causes and black identity and they're engaged to be married they have a wedding set up on on Martha's Vineyard and then the woman in the couple sort of her life unravels a little bit her interior life that is and actually I I was more struck by that character portrait of someone a, a deeply unsettling character actually was more at the heart of this novel than than the sort of portrait of Fort Green which which was enjoyable for me um but if you're interested in in um, sort of a trip inside someone's complicated brain, I would recommend New People by Danzy Senna. Wow, that's looking good. 
my recommendation this week is for the Jelly Arts printing plate. <laughs> That's right. Which, if the title isn't obvious, is an amazing reusable thing that allows you to make monoprints, you know, using acrylic paint or water-soluble inks incredibly easily. I actually have paint on my hands, I'm realizing right now. It's um, yellow. Yes. It is. Uh, I first heard of it through a YouTube video, which I rapidly became obsessed with. And now... Since I first saw it and ordered one, I have pretty much spent every free moment printing. And I've had people over for printing parties. Um, they come in various sizes. My favorite is 5 by 7 um, It's incredibly fun and easy. And it is a really good way of kind of pushing away the terrors of our age. Uh, while not making too much mess or requiring too much space. Which is obviously an issue if you happen to live in a New York apartment. Uh, so, the Jelly Arts printing plate... Uh, Make some things and tell us what you uh, printed. Cool. Uh, Christina, are you going to recommend an arts and crafts product? Unfortunately not. I'm recommending new-ish music from The Blow. Um, the Blow is a, a, a queer duo, New York-based duo, um, powered by the exquisite and bizarre mind of Kayla Marisich uh, with her partner Melissa Dine. I've been a fan for a while. They really take their time releasing music. Their last album came out in, I think, 2013. Um, but they've come out with a few new tracks. Their album is out uh, September 22nd, and I'm already obsessed. Um, one of the tracks is what they call a feminist rap, which I know might give you pause. Sounds um, like something I might hear on Glee. <laughs> it's better than Glee. Uh it, they say it took them three years to finish this feminist rap, um, and it's pretty good. It's They talk about, you know, uh, an ideal of a woman as a, a vehicle for male self-fulfillment um, and the idea of what they call being in the container of a girl. Um, but my favorite song that they've released so far is called Get Up, which is classic blow. There's... Um, you know, spoken word. It's like a weird sort of rap slash spoken word, a really intimate, uh, deeply weird spoken word that that Kayla Marisich um, powers her music with. And it's got incredibly sexy synth beats. It feels like you want to play this song at the club uh, or maybe even at a sex party. And then you realize <laughs> it's about uh, the spirit killing inhumanity of capitalism and property <laughs> accumulation. Uh, and it's perfect. Listen to it. And the album is called Brand New Abyss. It comes out September 22nd, and I can't wait to listen to it. Classic blow. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> Thank you, Christina. I think that's that's the end of our show for this week. Uh, our producer is Verilyn Williams. Our intern is Daniel Schrader. The executive producer of Slate Podcast is Steve Lichtai. On behalf of Noreen and Christina, thanks for listening. We'll be back with you in a couple of weeks. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.